Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hi and welcome to a new episode of Talking France. We are back with more insight into the big issues and talking points in France this week, including bedbugs. Yep, they just won't go away. We thought we dealt with them on this podcast, but they are back with a vengeance. And we'll try and explain whether France, and particularly Paris, has been overrun by an invasion of bloodthirsty insects. We'll also explain why second homes in one part of the country are being targeted in a bombing campaign and delve into France's regional identities and their quest for more autonomy. We'll also explain why a group of tourists, including Americans, were jeered as they arrived in France recently and why France's attempt to colonise Florida is in the news this week. We'll wash all this down with some tips for how to make sure you're picking a good bottle of wine in France, and in particular, whether those medals on bottles really mean anything. I'm Ben McPartland, your host, and joining me this week is the local France's editor, Emma Pearson, journalist Jen Mansfield, and politics-turned-bedbug expert, John Litchfield. Emma, Jen, John, thanks for being with us. Emma, Jen, we're back in the same room once again. Good to be back together. Welcome back, Emma. Uh, should we crack straight on? Anything you want to say, guys? I know. Let's, uh, yeah. let's do it. I'm let's hit it. For this. Okay. On Sunday night, explosions targeted around a dozen properties, most of them second homes, plus a former tax office on the island of Corsica. The following day, a group called the Front de Libération Nationale de la Corse, FLNC, claimed responsibility for the blasts. Fortunately, no one was seriously injured, but anti-terror police are now involved in the investigation. Emma, explain what's going on here. Well, you might have guessed, but this is linked to Corsican politics, especially the struggle for autonomy on the Mediterranean island. So this type of attack is not unheard of in Corsica. In fact, there's even a name for it. It's called a Nuit Bleu, or a Blue Night. But in recent years, things have calmed down quite a bit on the island. The targeting of second homes, uh, it is deliberate. Uh, Corsica is a very popular holiday destination especially for wealthy French people. And there are quite a large number of holiday homes on the island. And this mixes into the resentment that some of the locals feel towards people from mainland France. But mainly the FNLC's goal is political. Um, The message they sent to a local newspaper claiming responsibility for these attacks also said, our destiny does not lie with France. Interesting. President Emmanuel Macron recently visited Corsica and promised talks on autonomy. Sum up the background to this dispute and ongoing friction, Emma. Well, the the history of Corsica, it's long and it's complicated. could probably make an entire podcast just on that. Uh, maybe we will one day. But in brief, it only became part of France in the 18th century. And the most famous Corsican of them all, Napoleon Bonaparte, of course, he didn't speak French at all until he was 10. Throughout his life, he retained a Corsican accent. And also, apparently, he had great difficulty with French spelling and French grammar. So that's one thing that I have in common with yeah, Napoleon. Um, I've never tried to invade Russia, though. But anyway, the independence movement as we see it today didn't really emerge on Corsica until about the 1970s and 1980s. 1980s. The FNLC, they were formed in the 70s, uh, and that group, together with several other pro-independence groups, they carried out several bombing campaigns on the island, and they were also targeting of French local officials, uh, including the assassination of the island's French préfet in 1998. The FNLC, they officially declared that their armed struggle was over in 2014, although since then there have actually been several attacks similar to Sunday nights, including a Nuibler in uh, 2019, so it's not quite over. But 
These days, the political activity is mostly peaceful and it's conducted through the island's local parliament, the Corsican Assembly. At the moment, the status of the island is a collectivity, a collectivity and it does actually have a fair degree of local power. It has more um, decision-making powers than any other French region and it also has more than some of France's overseas territories such as Guadeloupe and Martinique. But there is still this call for um, on Corsica for more autonomy. So Emmanuel Macron, he visited Corsica recently, as you said, and he said we should have the courage to establish a form of autonomy for Corsica within France. We would all be failing if we left things as they are. So those talks, they're scheduled to last about six months, but it looks likely that the talks will just be on the type of local decisions that can be taken in Corsica. They're not talks on independence for the island. Right, let's bring in our French politics expert, John Litchfield, who joins us on the line from Normandy. And John's followed the story of Corsica closely over many years. Thanks for joining us again, John. John, what do Corsicans want? And will Macron give it to them? Well, Corsica is a wonderful place. And I don't know if you've been there, but it's an absolutely extraordinarily beautiful place. And they are extraordinary people. And don't want to say negative things about Corsica, especially. But there's no such thing as Corsicans, you know, like there's no such thing as the French. It's a very, very divided country. And even the divisions are divided. You know, I mean, I saw there was a number of attacks on new secondary homes and holiday homes this week. And there were two or three different fragments of the independence organizations who'd unusually come together to claim credit for those. But those are new fragments that are new to me that have come through place other ones that have declared peace in, in recent years. It's very difficult to know what Corsica wants as a whole, nor really know, to know to take things at their face value in Corsica. You know, there are often things that seem to be political that are really criminal, things that seem to be criminal that are really political. The country is hugely subsidised by its its connection with France, and yet increasingly, I think, young Corsicans, as young people everywhere have got more radical and have a more identitarian sort of approach, whether it's identitarian politics or identitarian nationally. It's happened there in Corsica as well. And Whereas it used to be a kind of right-wing thing, independence movements in Corsica, nationalistic, often slightly racist, the sort of left-wing young Corsicans have become very nationalistic and anti-French in, in recent years. So, as usual with Corsica, there are lots of different sort of movements going on, crisscrossing over each other. Macron has now suggested that there ought to be some sort of autonomy for Corsica, which he promised a year or so ago, so ago and went, uh, I think it was last week, was it, he was there, and added to that and, and repeated that, but said it could only be within the Republic. There's no question of Corsica being independent uh, or given some kind of direct independence, it could have more control, it could actually be mentioned and the language could be mentioned within the Constitution, it should be given a separate place within the Constitution, slightly different institutions to what it has now, but it must remain within France. Now, that probably suit many Corsicans, but whether it suit the sort of more radical elements of Corsican thought is unlikely. So there has to be an agreement of all the different Corsican parties, as I understand it, on, on what this new constitutional uh, arrangement should be. And getting that agreement, I think, is going to be very difficult. Thanks, John. And we'll hear more from you later on a very different subject. Now, there's little doubt that Corsica as a region has the most powerful separatist movement in France, but other places like Brittany and Occitanie also have strong regional identities. Jen, tell us a bit about them. Let's start with Brittany, a place you know well. Yes, I do love a striped (laughs) T-shirt. Brittany's had a long, long history of a strong regional identity, and it even has its own language, Breton. It's actually a Celtic language, so it has pretty much no linguistic connection to French or other Latin root languages. But it does share roots with languages like Welsh and Cornish. So as of 2018, over 200,000 people could speak Breton, 
And thousands of pupils in the region either attend bilingual schools or they learn a little bit of Breton in school. Actually, my, my partner knows a little bit of Breton, not a lot, but a little bit. And Breton nationalism as a political movement, though, it started springing up in the early 1900s. And there was a Breton National Party created just like with other um, independence movements. But when it comes to actual independence, the most recent broad survey happened in 2012. And at that point, only 18% of Bretons favored it. And a 2021 study found that 80% of Bretons are attached to their regional identity. So that's 21 points higher than the national average in France. But still, most Bretons feel quite attached to being French as well. Nevertheless, shortly after Macron made the Corsica announcement, which we just heard about, the president for the regional council for Brittany said that he wanted the same thing for Brittany. He said that if there were going to be any changes to the French constitution that like the ones that Macron was proposing for Corsica, that they should be extended to other parts of the country. And there are some Breton that would probably agree with him. A 2018 study found that 13.8% of Breton feel more Breton than French. So not a whole lot, but definitely a significant percentage. I mean, they've got their own Coca-Cola, so they're ready for independence, aren't they? <laughs> you ever had Brez Cola? I don't taste the difference. I think it's. I think it tastes like regular Coke. It's not bad, yeah. Okay, thanks, Jen. Look, let's move down to the southwest and the Basque country. We know that in the Spanish part of the Basque country, autonomy and independence has been a subject for decades. What about on the French side, Jen? Yeah, so the picture in French Basque country, which is also Pays Basque Nord, so northern Basque country, is really different than in Spain, where the Basque language, Euskadi, I hope I pronounced that correctly, is an official language that's recognized by the state, and the area does have political and cultural autonomy. Part of the reason that the picture is different in France simply has to do with the fact that more people live in Basque country in Spain. So the French Basque country is really quite small. Only about 300,000 people live there. And that isn't to say that people in the French Pays Basque don't have a regional identity, though. About one in five people in the region can speak the Basque language, and they have plenty of cultural festivals that take place every year. But as of 2021, only 6% of people in French Basque country said that they felt, quote-unquote, only Basque, and about 80% said that they do feel French. Mm, there's a couple of other regions in France, Jen, we should mention that have you know strong cultural regional identities, Occitanie, the south west, and Alsace in the east. Yeah, so Occitanie is the region in southern France, which historically went all the way from Italy to the Atlantic, so covering quite a large amount of space. While there's definitely less of an appetite for separatism in Occitanie than Brittany, the region does still have a distinct cultural identity, like you mentioned, and its own language, Occitan, which is also a Romance language, and it sounds a little bit like a mix of Catalan and French. I recommend looking up YouTube videos of it. Now, UNESCO recognizes Occitan as an endangered language, but in France, it's actually the most widely spoken regional language, with an estimated 800,000 people speaking it as of 2018. And there are plenty of revival efforts going on, including including plenty of bilingual schools. And yes, as you mentioned, Alsace in northeastern France is also a region with quite a bit of a cultural identity. Alsace is perhaps slightly different than other parts of France. That's at least in part because the area has been passed back and forth between the French and the Germans for centuries, from the 1600s right up until the end of World War II. So for some people in living lifetime. Because of this, Alsace has some different laws from the rest of France, especially when it comes to laïcité or state secularism. And people in Alsace also get two extra public holidays, so they get a day off for Good Friday and another one for St. Stephen's Day. And in Alsace, there is also a language, Alsatian, which is somewhat 
it's similar to German, and almost half, about 43% of residents, speak Alsatian, but those numbers have been going down steadily since the 1970s, unfortunately. Thanks, Jen. We do always get a bit jealous about Alsace public holidays, don't we? We should really move our office to uh, Strasbourg, perhaps. Brilliant. Thanks, Jen, for all that info. Forgive us now if we make you start scratching yourself over the next few minutes, but we need to talk about bed bugs. Emma, you're already scratching yourself there. We spoke about bed bugs a couple of weeks ago when they started to be spotted on French trains and cinemas were having to take drastic action, but we weren't expecting these little bloodthirsty biters to become such an international story. Emma, I don't know about you, but every message I've received from anyone in the UK in recent days has mentioned bed bugs. Only come at Christmas if you don't bring bed bugs with you, etc., etc. I'm getting a lot of abuse. It's all got a bit hysterical. A great example is perhaps the coverage of what the Deputy Paris Mayor Emmanuel Gregoire had to say about bed bugs this week. Emma, explain. Uh, yeah, so Emmanuel Gregoire, he's Anne Hidalgo's deputy as mayor of Paris. He's rumoured to be a possible successor if and when she steps down. But he's become very famous internationally this week for something he said about bedbugs, except that he didn't really say it. You will have seen, of course, that France's bedbug problem has suddenly become a huge global news over the last couple of weeks. And a lot of the foreign media have headlined their reports with an extremely dramatic sounding quote from Gregoire, which is, no one is safe. And honestly, I can see why editors around the world picked out that quote. It's got definite disaster movie feel about it. But when I went looking in the French media, I couldn't find that quote anywhere. And I thought that sounded strange since it's um, definitely a dramatic quote you would pick if you could. But it kind of seems like this came from an interview that Grégoire gave to the French TV channel LCI. And his exact words were, Personne n'est à l'abri. Now, that doesn't exactly mean no one is safe. It kind of translates as like, no one is immune, no one is exempt, or perhaps more literally, no one is sheltered. Abri is the French word for shelter, so you'll quite often hear homeless people referred to as sans-abri, like Mm. without shelter. So it does have sort of the same sense, but he's not saying that people are unsafe from bedbugs. I mean, they're, they're extremely annoying, but they don't actually pose any health risk, except possibly a lack of sleep if your bed is infested with them. And I think it's also important to look at the context, because he said this in response to a question about whether the bedbug problem was confined to certain areas of Paris. And he said, no, it's not. No one is immune. That's why the government needs to create a national anti-bedbug strategy. So not exactly the same there, I think. Just this week, London Mayor Sadiq Khan came out and said bedbugs in France were a real concern. He said people are worried about these bugs in Paris causing a problem in London as though there were a bunch of rowdy football hooligans crossing the channel to cause trouble. We've said before that there are bedbugs in France, especially Paris. But are things as bad as foreign media make out, uh, Emma? Um, Honestly, I'm not sure why this has become such a big story in the British and American media, because every country has bedbugs. They're not specific to France. And in most countries, bedbug cases are increasing. uh, And this is a global problem. It's mostly due to the fact that the extremely toxic chemicals they use to kill bedbugs have now been outlawed across the globe. But there are other factors too. So I had a look at, you know, how much these cases are actually going up by. It's not that easy to find exact data because France doesn't have any kind of national register of bedbug cases like most people who get a bedbug infestation just call a private exterminator. So it's a bit hard to tell whether cases are really increasing or whether people are just talking about them more. We do know that a total of seven schools have closed for bedbug extermination treatments in recent weeks. But on the other hand, the Paris public transport operator RATP and the national rail operator SNCF 
they say they've checked all reports of bed bugs and they've not found a single confirmed case, although that doesn't mean there isn't plenty of other bug life in the Paris metro. Private exterminators, on the other hand, they say they are seeing an increase in call-outs, but it's kind of a longer-term trend. It's not something that's just happened over the last couple of weeks or the last couple of months, in fact. A guy called Nicolas Rue de Bézieux, who's the founder of an extermination company called Bad Bugs. Nice. See what he did there? Yeah. Yep. He told the French TV channel CNews that incidents in France are doubling every five years, with one in ten households affected at least once since 2017. So clearly a problem, but that is the same picture across the globe. Um, in fact, back in 2011, uh, America's Environmental Protection Agency hosted a national meeting on bed bugs in Washington, D.C., mm. because they were so concerned about rising reports of the little bloodsuckers in towns and cities across the USA. Yeah, and I think the London mayor is actually way too late on this one because pest control company Rentakill says that there's been a 65% rise in bed bug cases in the UK this year. Bed bugs have been the hottest topic in France over the last couple of weeks. They've been rousing Parliament, one politician even bringing some into the chamber to make a point. But this issue has been around for years. Have the media got a bit too hysterical about this, Emma, in France? <laughs> I think, yeah, there is, there is a little bit of that, definitely. Although, I mean, there is no doubt that bed bugs are a problem, mainly due to the astronomical cost of extermination. If you get them in your home, then really the only way to get rid of them is to get in a professional exterminator. And that can easily be 600 euros. So like a massive cost for households. Mm. That's part of the reason that it's become a political issue, as you mentioned, this MP bringing them into Parliament, hopefully in a tightly sealed jar. But the, the opposition parties. You know, they say the government's been asleep at the wheel. It's failed to respond to a steadily growing problem. And there is increasing pressure for a national bedbug strategy, such as the one that Emmanuel Grégoire, the deputy mayor of Paris, was calling from. But also, I have noticed that some of this discourse has taken on a slightly darker tone. There was a media pundit on the French right-wing TV channel CNews he tried to link the bedbug infestation to immigrants with what he called a lower standards of hygiene. And some of the foreign media has also kind of tried to make this about hygiene that, like, is France unhygienic or are French people somehow not clean? I must come to the defence of my French neighbours and my fellow immigrants here, actually, and point out that bedbugs have absolutely nothing to do with cleanliness. Killing the bugs requires a temperature of above 60 degrees, so you can clean as much as you like and you won't get rid of them. And that's why you find them in even immaculately clean places such as luxury hotels. Mm, OK, let's return to John Litchfield now, who joins us on the line from Normandy again. John, you've written an interesting column for us about this bedbug story and how it became very political and even a little sinister in France. Well, everything in France is political very quickly. Yeah, I mean, what struck me in, you know, quite apart from suggesting maybe the French government has been very slow to get out of bed to do this, sorry. There has been an attempt by people on the hard right to claim this as their issue. I mean, the CNUs, a very hard, unplayable far-right TV channel, that star presenter, Pascal Pro suggested or asked a question which was extremely um, suggestive, uh, suggesting that somehow that these bedbugs were in France because the immigrants were in France, that the bedbugs were being brought in by immigrants, which was shot down immediately by the person he was asking. But if you look at on in the fascist sphere, as it's called, in social media or on even uh, sort of social or questions and answers and in something like the Figaro, quite a moderate right-wing newspaper, there are people saying that, no, we can't exclude that. It, people say it's connected with travelling and who's travelling, it's the immigrants. So it's become, and, you know, blood-sucking invasive species like um, bed bugs as a kind of a trope of paradigm for immigrants is a very nasty and, and dangerous thing to, to be saying and that's out there and the second the, the far left the hard left 
has been trying to seize an example of the government having abandoned its duties to protect the state and so on, with protect the people and so on, which is a more reasonable criticism, maybe in some ways. Mathilde Panot, the head of the La France Insoumise in Parliament, brought a little bottle full of bed bugs into the Parliament, which must be a first, and complained that she'd been pointing this out as an issue for years and that the government had been very slow. I find her mostly a fairly unhelpful and, and kind of a silly person, really, but I think on that, in this occasion she perhaps has hit upon something that is a genuine issue. It has to be said that I think bed bugs have become an issue in many cities. There have been a city a problem in Paris, in Paris, but in New York and London as well. It's partly to do with the abandonment and correct abandonment of very poisonous and potentially dangerous to human beings forms of insecticides uh, since the 70s. So it's not dirtiness, nothing to do with immigration. It is, it's an issue across the world. Why Paris and France seems to be suddenly afflicted by it, I, I don't know. It just seems to be partly a sort of moral panic, you know, that I think has been going on for a while. And because the media talks about it, people talk about them more. And so there seems to be this sort of invasion of the bedbugs, which is perhaps n- not very different from what it was a couple of years ago. The number of incidents are going, going up, but maybe people are more sort of aware that bed bugs exist and therefore they're reporting them more. So it's typically French in that way that it has become, it became very quickly a political issue with all the usual political dimensions rather than just a straightforward public health or, or public cleanliness issue. And there's been an element of French bashing perhaps, John, in the in the way the Anglo media has covered this crisis in France. Well, yes, in, in, inevitably, yes, there has. There was apparently on the Saturday Night Live TV programme in America, there was a segment, I suppose, this funny segment about it the other day with a sort of fake Macron wearing a beret and holding a baguette, believe it or not. Every cliche on earth brought together, yeah. uh, as that programme tends to do. So yeah, it's it was, it's made for the anti-French media as an issue. But I think, you know, it'd be interesting to know just how much bedbugs are a problem in other capitals. Apparently they are. I don't think Paris or France is uniquely afflicted. Thanks, John. And a reminder to readers and listeners, we have plenty of advice on the local.fr about how to deal with bedbugs if you do suspect you have them. I'll include the links in the podcast show notes and on our podcast article this week. Right, while bedbugs are busy colonising France, let's move on to an interesting news story that came up this week, Emma, that reminded us that Florida in the US was very nearly colonised by the French. Absolutely, yes. Now, I know I'm a massive geek and you laugh at me about this all the time, but this is my favourite story of the week because I honestly had no idea that France had tried to colonise Florida. Now, I must confess, like, this wasn't recent. You know, the French weren't trying to nationalise Disneyland or anything. Um, We're talking about the 16th century here, in the years after European sailors had reached the Americas and European powers were launching projects to try and conquer and colonise North and South America, mainly the, the French, the Spanish and the British. Now, the French Florida colony, it was pretty short-lived. It was first settled in 1562, and it was largely abandoned in 1565, just three years later, after a ship called La Trinité, which was sailing to the colony with supplies, colonists and soldiers from France, sank during a hurricane off the Florida coast with the loss of hundreds of lives. It was after this disaster of the loss of the ship that the French crown decided to concentrate on colonies in Canada instead, where they have fewer hurricanes. And as we know, Canada still has a a big French influence uh, to this day, especially in the French-speaking province of Quebec. So who knows? If it hadn't been for that 1565 hurricane, Florida might today be a French-speaking state. Interesting stuff. But why is this subject back in the news in recent days, Emma? Well, it's in the news because of an ongoing legal battle. Um, Back in 2016, divers found the wreck of La Trinité on the ocean floor. It's actually just off a beach on Cape Canaveral, and it's still 
still laden with historical artefacts, weapons, gold. Predictably enough, this lawsuit is all about money. The US-based salvage company that found it wants to keep and eventually sell anything that they find on the wreck. France, on the other hand, says that the goods are the property of the French state. But what's interesting about this is that a US law passed under George W. Bush in 2004 says that foreign powers get to keep ownership of former warships. And it's this law that has sent researchers scuttling off to the Bibliothèque Nationale in Paris to research exactly what the ship was doing at the time and whether it was indeed on a military expedition and therefore would be covered by this law. So it's from these records in the library that we found all sorts of details about the expedition and about French plans in general to colonise North America. The Florida colony is also pretty interesting because it was a colony of French Huguenots, Protestants, who at that time were a persecuted minority in France. The man in overall charge of the project was Admiral Gaspard de Coligny. He was the leader of the Huguenot religious sect in France and he would later be murdered during the St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre of Protestants in Paris in 1572. Wow, really interesting stuff. Thanks for that, Emma. Right, let's stick with ships for our next subject, but bring it a bit closer to France. Earlier this week, passengers disembarking a cruise ship that had docked in Western France were met with boos and crowds telling them to go home. This doesn't sound like a warm welcome for tourists, Jen. What's all this about? So on Sunday, a cruise ship coming from Dublin and then going to Portugal stopped in Western France in a small port town in Finisterre, Brittany. And when the passengers stepped off the boat, there were about 80 people waiting for them to tell them, go home or chant, you are not welcome, we don't need your money. (laughs) And the people were there to protest the environmental impact of cruise ships, actually. And specifically this one that is set to take a trip down to Antarctica later in the year. And obviously Antarctica is a place where climate change has already had a bit of a major impact. Right, so that makes sense. It wasn't personal about these particular passengers. One of the passengers on that ship, Jen, was an American from Seattle. What did he have to say about being greeted with jeers? Yeah, it's funny. This American, Eric Scott, told the French newspaper Le Parisien that he saw it as an educational experience, so quite the positive attitude. He said, that's the reason you travel, to get perspectives from other places. And I mean, he probably has a point. There is a pretty sizable population in France that opposes cruise ships. Um, Usually these are environmental activists, but some local mayors and governments and coastal towns have also said that they want to see fewer cruise ships stocking at their ports. Last December, Marseille, which is known for being one of Europe's most polluted ports, uh, brought in some new regulations that will force cruise ships to cut their sulfuric oxide emissions by 80%. And before that, the city's mayor had even started a petition, which managed to get over 44,000 signatures, to raise awareness against pollution in the Mediterranean. And we are also seeing this in some other parts of France. So in Nice, the mayor, Christian Estrosi, also said that he would like to see um, limits on cruise ships. And according to local media, he was, in July, considering banning ships greater than 180 meters in length from docking at the city's ports. And then there's also La Rochelle, which is along the Atlantic coast. They've recently set goals of cutting their CO2 emissions in half by 2030. And in order to do so, they want to reduce the number of ocean liners that can anchor there. Mm, Now, the cruise ship industry was hammered in the pandemic, uh, but it's since made a strong comeback with new ships taking to the seas each year. Jen, just how bad are these cruise ships for the environment? Well, if you ask Greenpeace and you look at Marseille alone, the 75 cruise ships that docked in the city in 2022 emitted twice as much sulfur oxides as the cars that were registered in the city. So all the cars registered in Marseille. And then there was a separate study from 2019 by the NGO Transport and Environment that found that cruise ships were responsible for more pollution than all of Europe's automobiles combined. 
On top of that, it's not just the pollution that's being released into the atmosphere. There's also an issue with sustainability. Large cruise ships tend to generate a lot of waste, especially from single-use plastics. But there is some hope for the industry in general. Last year, Marseille actually uh, launched a new zero-particle ferry that will travel back and forth to Corsica. And basically, it has a fine particle filtration system. And the goal is that it captures almost all of the main air pollutants that are emitted by cruise ships. Right. Interesting stuff. Thanks, Jen. Right, as I promised, it's time to wash all this information down with some essential tips about wine. Jen, for our reader question this week, you spoke to a wine expert. Tell us more. Yeah, so I spoke with Caroline Connor. Uh, she's also known as Wine Dine Caroline on Instagram and YouTube if you want to follow her. And she's a wine expert and teaches tourists and locals alike about wine in Lyon. And she's been working in the wine industry for the last 15 years. So I asked her about this experience that some of us may have had. If you've walked down a long wine grocery store aisle in France, you know what I'm talking about. Some of the wines have gold metal labels and others have silver and bronze. I started by asking Caroline what these medals on bottles of wine in French supermarkets actually mean and if they really mean anything. Honestly, I don't really think so. I think they all mean that a group of people judged this wine to be superior than its peers, basically. In a lineup, this wine was better than the other eight wines that we tasted of the same category. But it is based on, you know, usually a group of four people. So four people decided that. And and then they will collate the tests. The reality is that most producers don't submit wines to these competitions, right? So because it doesn't have a medal, doesn't mean anything. If it doesn't have a medal, that doesn't mean it's not good. Most wines are not going to go into these competitions because you have to, to spend money on it. And it's only really appropriate for the kinds of wines that are going to be at the supermarket and that are really focusing on price competition. So fine wines right. don't go into these. Okay. Can you speak a little bit more on that? So you're saying fine wines don't go into this competition. Is that just yeah. because they don't really need more name recognition? They don't need a medal to stand out from the crowd. And these are metals. The metals really are for wines that are value driven, that are going to be on a crowded supermarket shelf. And that's a way to stand out. So, you know, it, it does make sense as a marketing tool for a producer to try to receive these metals because at the supermarket, that is an indication out of, you know, 20 bottles that this one was judged well by, you know, compared to its peers. And so that is legitimate, but it's not something that we are going to be seeing on more expensive wines. I think anything above 20 is probably unlikely to have have one of these medals. I tend to fall for those medals all the time. The marketing really works with me. Jen, you also asked Caroline for some more general tips on buying wine in France, including where is the best place to get it and which regions wines might offer value for money. Let's hear what she had to say. My first tip is to shop at a caviste and not the supermarket. Not that the supermarket doesn't have good wine, because it does, but because there's no one who can help you in the supermarket. A caviste will be able to help you, a caviste being a wine shop. You know, at a caviste, you can talk to a human. And if you are lucky enough to have an independent wine merchant in your community, that person needs your money a lot more than Monoprix does, right? So I think there are a lot of valuable reasons to shop locally if you have a wine merchant to support that person. And that person will also then learn your tastes and, and be able to recommend things for you. And just because they do sell expensive wine doesn't mean that's all they sell. Even the fanciest wine merchants will have good value wines as well. And they're likely to be more interesting and better quality than the stuff at the supermarket because they're not going to be as mass produced in general. 
I think the best thing to do is to really focus on the regions that you know you like and regions that offer really good value for money. So in my opinion, a Cote d'Iron is always a safe bet. White and red Cote d'Iron are cheap and they're good quality. They're consistent. Uh, the Languedoc, anywhere in the Languedoc is going to have really good value. Provence as well. I know we we are all obsessed with Provencal Rosé, but there's some really good reds and whites down there as well. If you want to be really value-driven, then you definitely need to be in certain regions. You want to stay away from Burgundy for one. If you love Pinot Noir, but you only have eight euros to spend, I mean, it doesn't even exist, right? So you need to be in Alsace, by the way. If you love Burgundy and you want to drink Burgundy, I would get Pinot Noir from Alsace instead because it's a lot cheaper. And if you are lucky enough to get some Pinot Noir from the Auvergne, that's really good value as well. I think in France, wine is very cheap compared to certainly in America. Wine is cheap here, right? I think if you are up for spending 12 to 15, you can get some something quite nice from Southern France. But if you want to buy Burgundy, the, the decent Burgundy is starting at 40. I mean, really. And even that is like a stretch. Beaujolais, if you like Burgundy, but you don't want to spend Burgundy prices, Beaujolais has really great wine these days and is a lighter style. So it just does take a little bit of commitment to learning too and to noticing what you like. If you really loved something, then buy it, you know, buy that again, but also maybe buy something similar. If you're having multiple people over for dinner, maybe buy a few different wines so you can taste different things. Thanks to Caroline Connor for all those handy tips, which no doubt we will put into use this weekend. Right, Emma Jen, before we wrap up this week's episode of Talking France, we like to include some language tips for our readers now. France is notoriously protective of its language, especially against the invasion of English. However, living here, we know that the French use an unbelievable amount of English words in their kind of daily vocab. Can I start us off here? One which I love when the French are talking, they'll be in the middle of a French conversation, and then you'll hear something like, hmm, c'est un peu too much. And you're like, what? C'est un peu too much. It's like, it's a little bit too much. But instead of using the French version, they'll just throw in too much. And it's a bit weird because it's like, they use it so much, but it feels stupid for me to use, you know. I can't use it. And then, of course, there is the F word that they absolutely love using. You know, the English F word, the swear word, which I'm not, I'm not sure we could say on this pod. I'm not going to say it because it is a bit offensive. But, um, you know, they'll even have articles in newspapers that'll include it or segments on TV shows that'll be like, what the F? And for them, it's just another word. Maybe a bit like, you know, we use putain because it's another language. We kind of don't realise the seriousness of it. But there's way more examples of English in the French language. Emma, anything trouble you? Uh, yeah, I mean, you do hear these all the time. And actually, honestly, I find them harder to understand than French words mm. because they're pronounced with a very French inflection. So you kind of have to know. The first time I heard waiters talking about le happy hour, mm. I was just like, what? Um, but happy hour, of course, yeah. is very common. They don't pronounce like... it with a, a northern accent then? Apparently not, no. <laughs> I'm trying to introduce that. But um, but no, an happy hour is, you know, drinks drinks discounts in, yeah. the, uh, in the evening. And the other thing that I find, talking of drinks, when I'm ordering my favourite tipple. It took me ages to figure out whether I should ask for an IPA or an EPA, whether mm. you should translate these into uh, into French or not. I have now learned that if you want a good IPA, India Pale Ale, you ask for Impanta IPA. Um, oh, you do say IPA, you IPA, don't say EPA. Yeah. Okay. But even but you kind of have to say it with a slightly more French inflection if you just mm. go in, yeah, I'll have, I'll have an IPA, please. They mm. don't really understand what you what, what you mean. You have to say an yeah. IPA. It, yeah. it sounds kind of weird and artificial in English. The other week I was ordering a beer called Surfing Walrus. It, it was a, a, mm. a real L. Um, and so I, I just asked for Surfing Walrus and he was like, what? And I was, I was like, pointed to it. And he's like, ah, le Surfing Walrus. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. But I just sound yeah. stupid saying that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. I've had the there same experience when 
I've been um, trying to buy coffee for my French press, and I never know what to call the French press in French. And so I was trying to describe it to the guy at the counter, and eventually I was just like, oui, c'est pour un French press. And he was like, ah oui, un French press. <laughs> Hold on, Jen, what's a French press? It's a cafetiere. Uh, one of those things that you plunge. Yeah, plunge oh, right, it's called a French press. Yeah. Ah, good, okay. And another one that always got me when I first moved was, I would say, an iPhone, because I just assumed that iPhone would be properly translated into French, but no, they all say iPhone. And then I think my favorite one that like has a little bit of a different meaning in French is stop. So you'll hear French people say stop instead of arrête, which is their word for stop. But like I learned that French parents especially use stop when they're really serious. So arrête can be like a little bit jovial. You can be kidding around and say, oh, arrête. But when someone says stop, they really mean it. It's like, absolutely not, no more. Very true that, Jen. Yeah, I mean, these are great examples. You only really kind of pick up once you move to France. You know, it's not something you probably learn in a textbook. Thanks, Jen. Thanks, Emma. Thanks to John. Again, that brings us to the end of this week's episode of Talking France. We hope you enjoyed it. We'll be back with more next week.